welcome to another edition of Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham, where Team Needham discusses everything healthcare. I'm your host, Sean Needham, and I am streaming live from Team Needham Abode in our podcast studio. And I am super excited to have Dr. James Canneller on our podcast today. He is a cardiologist, and he can give you more specifics about the type of cardiologist he is, because it kind of goes over my head a little bit. Um, but he's going to be discussing atrial fibrillation and non-traditional treatments. He, uh, I met him in the Phoenix area last year. He works with Dr. Jack Wolfson, who we've had on our podcast, um, Natural Heart Doctor. And Dr. Canella is kind of on the same path, doing some traditional and non-traditional treatments of atrial fib and other cardiac disease. So, Dr. Canella, welcome to our show. All right, Sean. Thank you very much. It's certainly a pleasure to be here. So tell us a little bit about your background, history, and training, and and um, officially what you do now. Yeah, sure. So I am a I am a board certified um, cardiologist and cardiac electrophysiologist um, in part time traditional practice um, based in the Phoenix area, uh, most specifically Chandler, Arizona. Um, doing all things general cardiology, heart failure, and electrophysiology in particular. So I'm a AFib ablation specialist and do complex ablations for heart rhythms like SVT, PVCs, and ventricular tachycardia, plus cardiac devices like pacemakers, defibrillators, um, resynchronizing pacemakers, defibrillators, um, devices of these sorts um, to help the appropriate patient. Um, I am passionate about whole patient care and getting the best results for each and every individual. And that has led me to seek opportunities beyond the traditional medical model, which I think has much to offer uh, patients with the medical model having a number of um, important limitations. And that very serendipitously, after pursuing my own sort of um, health stream, social media presence, influencer presence, um, as James Canneller, MD, um, got me in touch with Dr. Jack Wolfson, who's based here in, in um, Scottsdale, Arizona, um, with the Natural Heart Doctor um, Mothership op- Office. And um, for the past eight months now, I've been doing consultations through Natural Heart Doctor um, based in, in Scottsdale, Arizona. That's awesome. That's quite quite a history. Um, and Tell me a little bit about what are so. Let's talk about um, ablations first. Isn't so? When I think of atrial fib, we're going to focus on atrial fib. When I think of atrial fib, um, Mm -hmm. one of the treatments used to be twenty or so years ago was cardioversion. Correct? Yeah. And and atrial fib, but how many years ago did we start doing ablations? Ablations probably started around around year 2000 for okay. atrial fibrillation, and initially they had a lot of problems and really sent the, um, the technology back to the drawing board in a major way, and it has continued to make incremental improvements since that time and continue to g- gain traction in North America and around the world. Actually, I think of the French as the leaders in ablation technology and um, basic science. Uh, So it's grown from that time. I was doing PhD research in cardiac electrophysiology, thinking I was going to be a basic scientist electrophysiologist um, back in the late 90s and in 2000 when atrial fibrillation ablation was 
become moving into the mainstream um, in cardiology and cardiac electrophysiology. And at that time, they were having major issues with pulmonary vein stenosis. You know, the French had published that the pulmonary veins, the four veins that bring blood back from the lungs, insert into the left atrium, they act as jet engines of electrical activity that initiate and perpetuate atrial fibrillation. The French had published on this and they were performing catheter ablation for pulmonary vein isolation, you know, to ablate around the pulmonary veins, electrically silence them as part of the treatment. The issue was, is that they were ablating, ablating too close to the veins and even within the veins. And when that would happen, the, the um, fibrotic reaction and the healing process, the veins would shrink and the, um, they would stenose and then blood couldn't get out of the lungs into the heart. And of course that's catastrophic. Yeah. So they had to work around that and realize that while the veins are still culprit, it's really the area around the veins, the antra of the veins that actually um, is possibly even more arrhythmogenic. And so now we use a what we call a wide antral ablation, ablating you know, one centimeter away from the orifice of each of those veins around the veins um, to include all of the aberrant activity that can originate in the antra of the veins. Okay, that makes sense. Now, I guess we should go back to defining what atrial fibrillation is without getting into too much EKG stuff. Um, what is atrial fibrillation and what causes it? Yeah, that's a great one. So atrial fibrillation is a disorganized rhythm in the top chambers of your heart, the atria. So nor a normal heartbeat is, you know, when the atria initiate the heart impulse, they contract. The electrical impulse and the blood then transfers to the bottom pumping chambers, the ventricles, and they contract sequentially. So the contractions are mechanical. They happen in sequence because the electrical signal is coming to them in sequence. Top chamber first, small pause, bottom chamber. So that's the normal heart impulse. When electrical activity in the top chamber becomes chaotic, which it can be, the heart, the atrial tissue can support cyclones, hurricanes of abnormal electrical activity where the top chamber is really beating at 300, even 600 beats per minute. And the activity in those chambers becomes completely disorganized um, when that's happening. We call that atrial we call that atrial fibrillation. If you were to see that in an open heart patient, say during cardiac surgery, you would say that the atria look like they are a bag of worms. It just looks like this seething mass of muscle, which really has no organized uh, contraction at all. The blood can then whatever electrical impulse bombards the bottom chamber gets filtered through the AV node. It will cause the bottom chamber to um, beat faster usually, but also irregular and irregularly irregular because it never knows what impulse is going to make it through from the top chamber. And as a result, the impulse in the bottom chamber is the stuttering action. And we call that the irregular, the irregularly irregular rhythm of atrial fibrillation. And that's how you diagnose it. You see that pattern of activation of the QRS complexes, which is the activity in the bottom chamber of the heart. And that tells you that it will, will be atrial fibrillation that is acting in the top chamber. So the ECG doesn't give you much information about the top chamber. It just lets you know that's what's going on. Then when we put catheters up in the heart and really sample the electrical activity of the top chamber, do we see the, the complexity and the chaos that's actually taking place up there? And there's just no way if your atria are doing that, there's no way to pump blood efficiently, correct? So you're going to probably have symptoms. Patients will have symptoms. 
Yeah. So patients get symptomatic and symptoms are variable. It can, it can vary from some people not even knowing they're in the rhythm to people feeling profoundly fatigued because it's like they're running a, a constant marathon um, with the heart racing or they get symptomatic from the irregularity. And that is um, exhausting and they can feel that as um, irregular palpitations. With that, you can get some mental um, sluggishness or some kind of brain fog from atrial fibrillation because the blood is the brain is very fussy about its blood supply. It wants a very constant, uniform, um, you know, um, repetitious, organized, you know, um, blood flow. So organized pulsations to the brain. When it's atrial fibrillation and it becomes very irregular and the blood flow with each of those heartbeats is also irregular to the brain, the brain has a very difficult time maintaining its auto-regulation. So it's, it's able to, you know, tighten and constrict its blood vessels to maintain normal perfusion in the brain during atrial fibrillation. That's very difficult for the um, brain to do that. And over time, the brain gets exhausted and sick of doing that and it can't do it and that will lead to abnormalities in your thinking brain fog and we're appreciating more and more that that becomes the provoking factor for mild cognitive impairment and progression even eventually to dementia so that's the other thing that's going on in atrial fibrillation um, in addition to just the fatigue and the palpitations which um really bodes well in the long run and makes it an increasing priority for us to have patients in normal sinus rhythm and before um there was ablation there would be cardioversions and one of the things i remember when i worked in the hospital is it seems like there were some patients that would come back in for cardioversions like in another week and maybe that's why they they we started doing ablations to prevent having to do cardioversions all the time. Explain what a cardioversion is and why they, they aren't always effective long-term. Yeah, that's a great question. So cardioversion is still something that we we've, that we do. You know, you can call it the paddles. And we've all seen on TV when the ambulance, you know, shocks a person's heart. And usually when they're doing that, it's for a, a dangerous ventricular rhythm. But the technology for shocking somebody out of atrial fibrillation is very much the same. So if somebody is in atrial fibrillation, um, you can sedate them because shocking is very painful. But then hopefully with appropriate sedation, uh, you can put the paddles across the heart and deliver 200 joules of direct current energy all the way up to 360 joules if somebody is very resistant. And that shock depolarizes all of the cells' heart all the cells of the heart simultaneously. So electrical activity is available nowhere. So atrial fibrillation then just snuffs out and then the heart recovers and the normal heart rate impulse picks up. So now you're in normal rhythm. But for somebody who's predisposed to atrial fibrillation, all those reasons for going into atrial fibrillation can still be there. And the durability of, of the cardioversion um, depends on the number of risk factors that are present for going right back into atrial fibrillation. And as soon as you go back into it, if you do, then the fact that we cardioverted you at all becomes meaningless. There's no enduring benefit to that. 
So when I take someone for cardioversion, I'm guessing what are my chances of you staying in sinus rhythm after this event? You know, if there's no obvious provoking causes to atrial fibrillation, it just seems to be something that happened randomly, then just cardioverting and watching and waiting is appropriate. When somebody has persistent atrial fibrillation or it's been an issue for them for a long, for a long time, or they've had a prior cardioversion, then I'm like, what antiarrhythmic medication can I have on board? So that even though that non-drug didn't convert you, for example, when I do shock your heart into normal rhythm, it'll be present to keep you there. So I'm looking for what's going to make the cardioversion uh, therapy durable. And what causes it? Do we know all the time what causes it? Most of the time do we know or do we just not know? It's an evolving science. And the official answer is that the official answer that you will hear at Heart Rhythm Society each and every year, including last year and next year, will be we do not understand the mechanisms of atrial fibrillation. That said, we do know a lot about it. So in a young person who may have a paroxysmal pattern of AFib, meaning the rhythm comes and goes on its own, that's often vaguely mediated the vagus nerve from your parasympathetic nervous system. Um, when the vagal nerve tone is high, that creates a substrate in the atria that um, really can uh, support atrial fibrillation and makes the um, chamber vulnerable to going into atrial fibrillation, where then any random extra beat that may come along, and these things always do, could be enough to set up the spiral rhythm activity of atrial fibrillation, and now you're in that rhythm. As people age and accumulate pathology, so we're older, we may have some scarring in the heart, we might have some fibrosis in the heart, the autonomic nervous system becomes a little bit dysregulated or sluggish um, in the elderly cohort of patients, then um, the atrial fibrillation arises from the substrate itself. The atrial myocardium is a dance floor to support the electrical activity. Um, when that starts to get interrupted by the presence of fibrosis or scar or conduction abnormalities, then these abnormal then it's predisposed to supporting these abnormal rhythms, and that's in fact what we see. Okay, that's, that's so, more of a functional mechanism. Yeah, I, I I love this background on it, the definitions and and some of the traditional treatments and causes. So mm -hmm. now let's talk about what kind of sets you apart. Um, some of the non traditional treatments. So what is that about? Is it about prevention? Is it about treatment? Um, go ahead. Sure. So if you start with somebody who's coming to you um, for atrial fibrillation, so their, their chief complaint is AFib, and it may be in that paroxysmal pattern, meaning it comes and goes on its own, you know, it shows up and then it disappears and it's kind of playing hide and seek with you all the time, or you come in a persistent pattern, meaning the AFib is always present, or it's present for weeks at a time, you know, without interruption. Um, those two distinctions are important, but they're presenting to you with this. Then we then we look and we say, you know, what are the contributing factors that are in front of us in your life um, that we can potentially reverse, hoping to reverse the substrate of atrial fibrillation, hopefully creating the milieu in the heart that makes the atrial fibrillation disappear or creates a situation where we can regain control of the heart rhythm. So, there's a very nice there's very nice graphs of all the contributing factors that all point into AFib and and make that and make that rhythm change possible. Um, traditional heart risk factors are all part of it. 
So high blood pressure, for example, if your blood pressure is high, that's going to result in increased pressures inside the atrial chamber. So now the atria is stretched. And when it's stretched, it's electrically irritable. So high blood pressure is probably the number one risk factor for atrial fibrillation. We know that glucose is highly inflammatory in our entire cardiovascular systems. Probably the number one reason why we age and eventually die in the first place is um, high levels of glucose in the in the blood. Um, that inflammation is going to impact in the atrial chambers, make them electrically irritable, create fibrosis, cellular dissociation over time. So diabetes, people who have the most glucose dysregulation um, are going to develop more atrial fibrillation. So we see risk factors like that. Um, atherosclerosis, someone's developing plaques in the arteries of the heart. That can also be arteries that feed the atria, resulting in ischemia to the atria. That is electrically destabilizing and can be enough to flip the switch from normal rhythm into um, AFib. Uh, more recently recognized risk factors are sleep apnea. So if you have sleep apnea, um, these are very, you know, you're having, it's like someone's plugging your nose or cutting off your airway repeatedly while you sleep. And as a result of that, you are, your adrenergic nervous system is activating and forcing you to become awake so that you can, you don't suffocate, you can take a gulp of air. You know, when that cycle is happening again and again and again, night after night after night, the adrenergic stress resulting from the sleep apnea will have a very negative impact on your heart and will predispose you to atrial fibrillation, for example. It'll directly impact the heart. It'll increase your blood pressure, and that predisposes in and of itself. You know, um, all of these things contribute to sugar dysregulation. It's going probably going to exacerbate your diabetes, which becomes a contributing factor. So then you now you're in a perfect storm of factors that are all that are all electrically destabilizing for your heart. And the moment comes when your rhythm flips. You're out of that normal rhythm, and now you're in that very disorganized um, electrical activity known as atrial fibrillation. And um, away we go. So to treat those things, you know, it's walk back the risk factors first and foremost and give the heart uh, the opportunity to do reverse electrical remodeling so it becomes more stable. I, what I think is so interesting, I mean, I'm, I'm learning as, as, as you're talking, um, you know, I, I, I'm very much, my wife and I are two pharmacists that are very much focused on, you know, preventative health mm -hmm. and teaching people to sleep right, eat right, exercise right, all that stuff. And I would have never really guessed that the same principles to, you know, help you be healthy, whether it be look healthy, whether it be, um, you know, lower your blood pressure, all those kind of things actually when you do the wrong things can also contribute to atrial fibrillation. Yeah. It's just, you know, it's just, it's just a reminder how important it is mm -hmm. that we take care of our bodies in general, overall, you know, I think, I mean, I can just tell you from my standpoint, I was, you know, putting the heart in a little box thinking, Oh, well, you know, I don't think diet and exercise and sleep are really going to affect, you know, atrial fibrillation. Um, but, Obviously, it does. Everything you just said is all preventable. And I'm yes. not, and, and as a cardiologist, I think you'll agree with this. We can't always prevent atrial fibrillation. There are some unknown causes, I'm sure. But mm. a lot of them, it sounds like, are lifestyle related. So many, so much, you're exactly right. So much of it is lifestyle um, related, preventable, and potentially uh, reversible. And really, some of the highest quality research in cardiology, you know, from um, Journal of American College of Cardiology, 
um, has identified that weight loss, weight loss that's done in the context of exercise and increased lean body mass, for example, can have dramatic impacts on your vulnerability to atrial fibrillation and your response to treatment for atrial fibrillation. So those are the things we want to absolutely work on as soon as we, um, as soon as we're, uh, as soon as we're aware to. And atrial fibrillation be can become a great motivator now to start getting your life back in order. Well, I can share um, a personal story. I won't mention his name, but he was a doctor that I worked with. Hmm. Um, he has since passed away, rest in peace, due to cancer. But he went into atrial fib and he was not treating his body very well. And okay. so, you know, he, he was hospitalized. He was, he loved to work out. Um, so he was a big guy um, and muscular, but he wasn't very lean because he didn't eat very well. Okay. So he ended up being in the hospital with atrial fib mm -hmm. and um, he was a naturopath actually. Oh, wow. And of course they want to do a blazer right away. And he says, you know, let's just let things calm down. I'm going to make some decisions later on. Anyway, he, uh, he changed his lifestyle and changed his eating and um, started intermittent fasting, some things like that. Mm. And he lost about, I think he went from like 250 to 210. Okay. And over the next five years, he never had atrial fibrillation again. And he, and until he was diagnosed with colon cancer, he was in the best shape of his life. Um, and we really, you know, I guess thinking about it, we shouldn't mm -hmm. be surprised that, you know, that we can prevent this kind of stuff by the way we treat our bodies. I mean, if you put extra weight on the body, you're going to put an extra load on the heart and it's going to cause all kinds of problems. I can see why the heart wouldn't want to pump appropriately, you know? Right. Absolutely. No, that's a great story. That's a great story and somewhat of a classic story of someone really using atrial fibrillation as the as the motivation to overhaul their their life their regimen their diet their exercise their weight and you bring all of these risk factors under control and you can control atrial fibrillation now that is that is not true for everybody and it's you know those are then the people that we um, need strategies to to help them achieve normal rhythm so other than some of these lifestyle changes that, you know, we, we talked about just in general, mm -hmm. what are some other non-traditional treatments? What about like, um, is there any kind of mineral deficiencies? I think of magnesium. Um, yes. Yeah. So let's talk about some of those things. Oh, for sure. So that's a great point. So magnesium and potassium in particular are um, electrically quieting for the heart. So you want ample levels of magnesium, ample levels of potassium to help with electrical quiescence and rhythm stability in the heart. Um, almost everybody in North American society, I think, is magnesium deficient. A lot of people have um, lower potassium levels than, than um, they probably should. That can be that can be due to diet. It can also be due to other medications, particularly medications for high blood pressure can mess with your the levels of electrolytes in your system. And even if on your blood test, your levels might show that they are normal range, um, in fact, they could be substantially higher and should be substantially higher, but still within normal range. And often the blood tests we do are misleading about what's happening inside the cells of our heart. Um, which has a huge effect and probably even a bigger effect on, on the electrophysiology. And that's especially true for magnesium. You know, you measure magnesium in your, in your blood and you say, well, that's essentially normal range. Well, intracellular magnesium can be um, 
substantially deficient in that same in that same situation. So the blood needs to do everything it can, or the body needs to do everything it can to support electrolyte levels in the blood pool. And it will do that at the expense of intracellular electrolytes. Mm, so it's right. got to maintain the blood pool. And if the blood pool is too low on magnesium, it says, okay, everyone pony up, contribute some magnesium to the blood pool to raise those levels. So those levels look high when in fact the, uh, the intracellular magnesiums deplete. So it behooves almost everybody to have a good natural form of magnesium as a supplement um, to keep the blood levels nice and high so that the, magne the cells have the ability to now pull the magnesium out of the blood and take it um, intracellularly. And what about potassium? I, I know, you know, we got to worry about giving too much potassium, but is that really a problem orally? So I get nervous with people who have renal fun renal dysfunction. Right. So you can, what you don't want to do is, so high levels of potassium are fatal. You know, one form of lethal injection was to give potassium chloride. So we know enough of enough uh, potassium overload will shut down your heart completely and for good. And, and, and that's lights out. We don't want that to happen. The people who might be vulnerable are renal people with um, significant renal insufficiency, because if you overload them, they can't compensate. Um, but for people with normal or generally preserved renal function, really they can tolerate um, potassium supplementation and a, a diet with foods that are high in potassium and they will not get overwhelmed because when the, le the levels get nice and high, the cells are happy and before they can ever go too high, the kidneys are able to compensate. So I'm confident giving, definitely recommending high potassium foods to almost everyone with atrial fibrillation. And if they have reasonable renal function, telling them that a potassium supplementation can, can also be helpful. And often that's enough to make the difference. And if you do follow up blood work in those individuals, their potassium levels are just fine. They're not too high. That's, that's good to know. Yeah. So what are some other, maybe more um, outside of minerals and vitamins, what are some other maybe herbals, herbal things that we could, that you might recommend for uh, atrial fibrillation? Yeah. So I'm excited. That's a good question. I'm excited about two right now. You know, in, in um, cardiology, we have this paradigm. Are we going to do rate control or rhythm control? So rate control is like AFib. We accept that it's here. We're just going to try to slow down your heart so it doesn't bother you so much. Rhythm control is like, we don't want atrial fibrillation. We want you in normal rhythm. You know, so that's the strategy of ablation and classical antiarrhythmic drugs. And I love antiarrhythmic drug mechanisms, you know, flecainide, sodalol, dofetilide. These are my friends. I have a lot of experience with them. Um, so then it's very interesting to me when a herbal entity may come along that has antiarrhythmic action and has the ability to convert you out of atrial fibrillation back into normal rhythm and then keep you there. And um, with since my time in natural heart doctor, I've become more sensitive to what these agents can be. And I think number one, we would say is berberine. Mm -hmm. The nutraceutical botanical berberine has an antiarrhythmic action. There's actually um, small studies published in very good journals, um, American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, showing that berberine can be as effective as, as um, amiodarone in the um, post-cardiac surgery patient. So post-cardiac surgery, we've, you know, 
irritated the atria quite a bit. A lot of those patients will be in atrial fibrillation, at least for a time. It's very common to give them amiodarone. Studies have shown that berberine in that context can be as effective. So berberine has so many other benefits also. Yes. You know, um, without, without a lot of side effects, amiodarone can be a nasty drug. Amiodarone is nasty. I don't want anyone on that long-term and I really don't even like to use it in the short term. Um, It gets thrown around a lot in the emergency department. And I think by, um, you know, internists and general cardiologists, because it's hard to screw up amiodarone, you know, it's okay, regardless of renal function, regardless of liver function, it doesn't matter if you have coronary disease or heart failure, amiodarone is considered safe, it's not going to make your heart worse. But there's all those long term toxicities and often people get forgotten on those things. So it might be a good way to get someone out of the emergency department, but then it gets left on board for far too long. Um, So we'd like to have alternatives when I get those patients to uh, transition them to. Other antiarrhythmics are far less toxic, and so it's nice to move people to those. But then you have to be concerned about renal function, QT intervals, whether they have coronary disease, whether they have ischemia, what is the ejection fraction, is it high or low? Because there's different contraindications to each of those meds as as those parameters change. We have to pay attention to them. Um, Berberine is an exciting herb in that it can restore normal sinus rhythm. And I'm gaining my own experience with patients who are happily maintained in sinus rhythm on berberine. Another herbal that I've become aware of and patients through Natural Heart Doctor introduced me to this one is uh, scotch broom. It's kind of an invasive flower, but scotch broom taken as a tincture, which is like a dropper um, on your tongue, can be a very effective antiarrhythmic. And I'd read about it in the literature. I knew it was out there. I didn't have much experience of my own. And then through one of these Zoom consults that we do with patients all over the country for Natural Heart Doctor, you know, I met an elk hunter in Wyoming, a gunslinging elk hunter, early 70s, you know, up in the mountains. He's at 10,000 feet shooting elk, skins them up there, you know, packs them out and whatever. And um, doing these very vigorous activities at high altitudes at an advanced age, you know, he would go into atrial fibrillation. And his um, his naturopathic doctor had set him up with, um, with uh, scotch broom tincture. And he would do 15 drops on his tongue, and that would reliably kick him out of atrial fibrillation um, pretty much each and every time. He just swore by it. And um, when you start to collect those experiences, right. um, that gives you the confidence to say, hey, this is this is something, you know, and this is effective. And I've been recommending that more and more to um, patients, both through Natural Heart Doctor and in my conventional practice for people who are, who are wanting, uh, you know, more of a natural approach to their to their care. And I'm gaining um, my own experience and confidence with um, Scotch broom, for example. That's awesome. I had never even heard of that. I'll have to do some research on. on Isn't that, that cool? Word. Yeah, it's very cool. And to think that you can use it, you don't use it every day. You use it PRN, I guess. So he was started out using it PRN exactly for episodes. And then he had transitioned to taking it regularly. Okay. Yeah. yeah because wow. he was having, he was having more breakthroughs than he would like. Um, and so, but in that context, it was controlling him completely. For him, it was 15 drops on the tongue twice daily, and um, and he swore by it, and that's what he was doing, you know. And it, it seems great. I mean, what are the things that we worry about in cardiology? 
Can you get rid of the drug? Same thing with you in pharmacy. Can you get rid of this? Yep. Are you able to pee it out? Can your liver metabolize it? Yep. So if either of those pathways are compromised, is that going to affect the level in your blood? Or idiosyncratically, is this something that pr prolongs your QT interval? So is it going to interact with the ion channels in your heart that prolongs the QT and that then sets you up and makes you vulnerable to these dangerous ventricular rhythms? You know, different antibiotics have that property and we learned the hard way that we had to be careful about that. I don't see these herbals being QT prolongers, for example. And um, I don't really see a potential for toxicity or easy toxicity. You know, obviously if you take too much of anything, that's bad, but within reasonable dose limits, I think they have pretty broad application. And well, um, yeah, I make people aware of it for sure. Yeah, you know, going back to berberine, you probably know this, but you know, berberine, one of the other effects of berberine is it helps us to be more sensitive to insulin. Yes. Um, and, you know, that alone, talking about glucose levels mm -hmm. and atrial fib, that alone is just another benefit of berberine, not just on the actual rhythm of the heart that you're talking about, but to help prevent to help prevent the metabolic disease in the first place. Yes, yes. So it's interesting to me, is the action of berberine all through the metabolic effects and glucose right. control, or is there also is there also a direct antiarrhythmic action? That, that's what I was thinking in my head when you were talking. Mm -hmm. that. Yeah, I've never heard of it really used for uh, atrial fib, but you know, obviously for uh, you know mm -hmm. diabetes and things like that. So um, that that's just very interesting. I also think you know one of the things is is that as you know, most all drugs come from a plant source, right? But but we go to that plant source, whether it be berberine or, mm -hmm. or the 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 one I like to use is white 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 willow bark because that's the first drug that was ever isolated was aspirin from white willow bark. Oh right, yeah. And you know one of the problems with with um, pharmaceuticals is we try to take that white willow bark and we try to find the active ingredient in it. Mm -hmm. But we, we don't know what we don't know. So we try to find an ingredient in it that we think is active and we do studies on it and it might work. But the mm. problem is, is there's probably other ingredients in that plant that work synergistically with it to either and other ingredients that decrease side effects. So when we first isolated aspirin from white willow bark, you know, because we knew that, pe that the natives were using white willow bark for, for headaches and for pain and inflammation. Mm -hmm. Yes. And fevers. We started using we, we we isolated the active ingredient. Next thing you know, we're giving people GI bleeds. We're giving people kidney problems. Um, white willow bark never caused that, and, right. and we, we don't know why because we don't know what we don't know, and we'll never ever figure that out. That's why, you know, trying to isolate an active ingredient from any kind of natural source mm. is just. I'm not saying it's not necessary because there's drugs that are life saving. Yes, there's some problems in it also. Absolutely, no, that's a great point. That's a great point. We I, Right. And now what are we going to do, you know, and how do we get people to take white willow bark? You know? <laughs> exactly. and how will you ever, how will you ever um, shift the medical community, you know? Yeah. Right. Now exactly. that it's so entrenched. Yeah. I mean, we know that aspirin is not that great and it's not that effective, right. but it has now become the standard of care, yeah. you know? Yeah. So to displace it, even though it kind of sucks, you have to prove that you have something better. And the only way to prove that is through some very large, controlled trial that would ever be enough to give doctors permission to say just use white willow bark rather than the right rather than this aspirin isolate and um there's no one to pay for those studies so we're yeah. going to be stuck and that leads us to 
you know, your type of practice, my new type of practice is when do we look beyond the medical guidelines to find natural therapies and identify natural therapies for people that are going to be effective for them, but that a traditional doctor will never have license to recommend to them. Yeah, exactly. Well, and and thank goodness for doctors like you and Dr. Jack Wolfson, because, um, you know, we, we definitely need you guys. And, you know, my whole goal as a pharmacist is just to educate and empower individuals to take charge of their own health. I think as doctors and pharmacists, we can, you know, we can help teach them. Um, But ultimately they've got to you know, just like you're talking about with atrial fib, mm-hmm. they've got to ultimately take charge of their health in order to prevent disease. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, there's right. There's a lot the patient can do. And when they're looking for us for other answers, and I think it's up to us to use our medical education and sophistication to rec, to see what our therapies are capable of, recognize their limitations and recognize what things should be able to go beyond those limitations and then help take the willing patient in that direction and to take those extra steps. Absolutely. And and so I, I thank you for being on today. Um, as, as we wind this podcast up, I'd like to ask you what, what is your passion? What do you have a passion for? What do I have a passion for? <laughs> Helping people ultimately, yeah. but also understanding mechanisms and um, finding optimal solutions. You know, my background was original engineering. I love the closed form mathematical solution. You solve the problem rigorously and that solution worked each and every time. And when something didn't fit the solution, it was because there was an error in the way that it was applied, you know, but we knew the answer to problems. And that's what motivates me. And I know medicine doesn't provide that. It's a lot of, you know, band-aids and symptom cover-ups. And that may be for good reason. We don't know ultimate solutions, but I would like to find ultimate solutions for people and to bring kind of that engineering model into, into medicine. So you mentioned that you do um, consults for people all over the, all over the nation. I'm streaming you guys' website here. Uh, oh, fantastic. Yeah, it's Natural Heart Doctor. Mm-hmm. Uh, you guys are down in Scottsdale. Tell us a little bit about about getting a hold of you if somebody has some questions. Yeah, so um, call the office or on the website. Um, there's links to schedule with, there's links to request a health coach consult or to schedule directly with um, I or Dr. Wolfson or one of our um, natural medical doctors. So it's all available through the website. Um, if that's confusing, please pick up the phone call and um, and call us and we'll help walk you through it. But yeah. I'll do a second opinion consult for anybody anywhere in the country or around the world. Happy to see you also in um, Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, Lots of patients um, flying out to see us after that telehealth consult. You know, you'll meet somebody and you say, well, I think you need a stress test or something from cardiology. If you want me to prescribe for you, I need to see you in person. And the next thing you know, they're on an airplane and they're in front of you. So a lot of people don't have general cardiologists or the one they want. And um, we can provide that service as well. Um, But certainly we can get set up online. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you guys have a wonderful facility. I I feel honored to be able to to meet and chat with you guys. I'm, I'm open to see you guys again soon. I, 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 who doesn't want to go down to Scottsdale in the, in the middle of the winter in, up in the north? Yeah, no, this is perfect, you know, and I just say bravo to Dr. Jack Wolfson for setting up Natural Heart Doctor. 
you know, Absolutely. and taking the practice that far. It was a dream for me to do. I never, I've met him before I achieved that on my own. And I'm just amazed by what he's assembled. Well, and thank you for stepping out. It's that it's really important that, um, you know, more doctors step into, you know, more non-traditional treatments because um, they, they, there is a lot of validity to them. We want to provide a pathway for other practitioners to begin this style of practice or add this style of practice as a complement to um, to what they're doing already. I love it. I love it. Yeah, well, Dr. Canella, that, that uh, winds up our podcast. I'd like to thank you for helping us to realize our goal, which is just to educate and empower individuals to take charge of their own health. So I really appreciate, appreciate you being on. Your knowledge and wisdom is super appreciated. So thank you so much. Awesome, Sean. Thank you so much. Yep. Listeners and viewers, thank you for tuning in to Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Tune in Wednesday to our midweek podcast. I don't even know what the subject is yet. Actually, um, I'm going to be on my own and I'll be talking about something, but I don't know what yet. So tune in Wednesday, 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Health Solutions with Sean and Janet Needham. Thank you. Thank you.